Right, welcome back. This is the Chelsea Fancast. I, of course, am Stanford Chidge. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm looking... I'm, the joy of Zoom. I'm, I'm looking at the lovely, uh, scintillating Jonathan Kidd. Oh, Chidge, you've never called me that before. Yes. How's your studio? I can see a photograph of your dad sticking out of a bag. Yeah. 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 You know what? I've just put... Um, I'm still attempting to write my dad's... Um, uh, uh, finish off his autobiography, but I'm also going to do a, a kind of lockdown um, documentary. So I've just put, I've got hundreds of his stills. I'm putting them into Final Cut Pro with a view to then making a, a, me ta- chatting about him. And I've asked various people um, who like him to to do me little videos. If anybody mm. listening fancies, fancies being in my show, just say uh, and knows a bit about my dad, made 280 films, talk about what you think. He's on Talking Pictures TV all the time. So if anybody wants to uh, um, just to contribute or even just a note, I'll read it out. I'm happy to because it's it's a lockdown doco. So I'm using um, I've got lots of home movies stuff with my dad and uh, I've taken the odd shot of him very obviously on the TV, which I'm sure is probably illegal. But I think somebody's going to, you know, just because it's a lockdown doco, that this is him in that. And, uh, and I'm going to act out a few of the things he was in as well. I've got a little green screen downstairs. So uh, so I'm going to say and of course, then he was in. Uh, I'm all right, Jack. And then I'll cut to me standing next to me going, why don't you go and photograph somebody else? Jonathan? Uh, Yeah. What a bite the workers. Yes, indeed. Absolute charge. It's a great, great film. That. Great, great uh, anyway. Great film. Yeah, thank you. But uh, that's what I'm up to. Yeah. So. Other than uh, Jonathan and his lockdown doc, uh, we're absolutely delighted this week for the second week in a row. I can't actually think. You know, maybe in the early days when obviously we had the same people on every week. It's un- unlike us, Mark, to have two people, uh, the same person on for two weeks in a row. So uh, not, not not that you should feel honoured or anything. The honour is ours. I can assure you. But we got yeah. Mark Meehan. Uh, currently a CFC UK writer, formerly Chelsea Independent, and of course he wrote the Eddie Mac, Eddie Mac book, which we're going to draw heavily on tonight. Mark, great to have you on the show again this week. Thank you very much, Chidge. Uh, oh, the only other thing, uh, this is a shameless plug by me, that Chelsea Independent book you mentioned, Like, if, if people follow me on Twitter and want a copy, just get in touch with me through a direct message and then I can tell you how to do so. Yeah, I, I'm guys, uh, do it because it's. Br- I'm, I, I flicked through it and uh, it, it's brilliant. It really is. It's opened up a whole new world to me. Um, right uh, before we get on with the, talking about the seventy six, seventy seven season, I'm just going to give a quick plug to our Patreon account uh, where you can become a Chelsea Fancast patron and help us uh, cover the cost of running all of our shows uh, so that we can carry on doing them. Uh, it's very easy. Just donate whatever you want per show. Well, per month, really. Because uh, you can't really do it per show, but anyway, you know, a couple of quid—that's fine. Um, www.patreon.com forward slash Chelsea Fancast. Uh, it's also occasionally we we put up stuff that we don't put up anywhere else, uh, and uh, quite often we put up stuff that is available everywhere else. But either way, you can get hold of me quite easily, and I will try and reply to you as I as I do my best so to do. And you can send in any, you know, if you want to have something read out on the show, send it there as well if you're a Patreon member, and I will look kindly upon you. Right, enough twaddle from me. Um, now we're going to the the uh, the main course uh, of this evening, which, of course, uh, is Chelsea uh, in the 1976-77 season, part of our 50 Years of Chelsea series, where we're, we're basically looking back at uh, one season every Chelsea fancast episode. We started in 1970, uh, and we're just going to keep going and keep going and keep going. Uh, we're almost, uh, we're kind of halfway through our first decade, really, a bit bit more than halfway. Last week, we left it with, uh, you know, a, well, I mean, on paper, it was the, 
you know, worst season in Chelsea's history apart from 62, I think. Well, actually, it might be their lowest finish to date, but uh, uh, obviously, you know, things get worse in a few weeks' time, but we have to wait for that. Uh, but it wasn't good, although actually that would be somewhat of a false way of looking at it, at it as, um, as Eddie McCready does, did say himself in Mark's fabulous book. But before we get into all that, I mean, the, the thing that was utterly clear, Mark, and, and I was reminded by this by reading the book, you know, Eddie made it very, very clear when he took the job, uh, in fact, what I didn't realise uh, until I read his fabulous interview was that it was his suggestion that Ron Seward went upstairs and he carried on at the end of the 75-76 season. Am I right? No, 74-75. Get it right. And um, basically he said to them that he would get Chelsea up in in two seasons. He'd need the first season to really get a handle on how good the players were and how the you know what the best system would be what he was dealing with really so he didn't really think that the previous season was too much of a problem for he was quite happy that they'd managed to finish mid table relatively comfortable and unscathed but the first the first thing that that struck me about this season 76 77 was that it was very much promotion or bust the club by now were 3 million in debt and they absolutely had to get promoted and therefore, Eddie had to make good on his promise to uh, Brian Mears, didn't he? A lot of pressure. A lot, a lot of pressure. Absolutely spot on. Yeah, we by the July of '76, we were 3.4 million in debt. Um, the club's creditors had given the club a one-year moratorium, so we had one year. So it was you know promotional bust. You know, so there was no question. You know, Eddie had to get us back into the first division. He had the added pressure. In times like that, the vultures start circling. You know, so in July, Chelsea had to address, you know, resist uh, record-breaking transfer bid from Liverpool. Liverpool bid three hundred fifty thousand for Ray Wilkins, and that sort of pressure would have been hard, you know, for the club not to take the money. But they turned it down because Wilkins was a fundamental part of that side. You know, club captain, and he played a key role over the next hour and twenty minutes. We're going to talk about, uh, yeah. They did. I mean, you know, to be fair to, to to the club, I mean, they did promise Eddie that they wouldn't sell anybody. Uh, I mean, they also promised that they wouldn't buy anybody. But, you know, they didn't actually sell anybody. So pretty much apart from um, Ian Hutchinson finally retiring, bless his heart, the, the side that went into uh, this season was pretty much the side that, uh, you know, finished the season before. And Jonathan, they had a really, really good start, actually. Um, you know, basically they only lost uh one game in their well, a couple of games in their first kind of first month or two. Um kicked off with Orient. Now this this made me chuckle, Jonathan, uh the Orient match. We we played them down there uh, away away uh, at Orient and we won one nil. And you know, I heard you a few a few weeks ago talking about walls collapsing and aggro on the pitch, and there was more aggro on the pitch this time. In fact the the, the Orient chairman uh determined that Chelsea were animals and they were on the pitch. Were you one of the animals on the pitch, Jonathan? <laughs> Just asking for a friend, mate. You've known me for some time. Do you ever? Do you think I would ever have run on the pitch, ever? No, I just have this vision of you wearing bell bottoms with a silk scarf saying exactly Chelsea headhunters. Hey, hey, that's you know, exactly what I look like. With, with I, longer I, hair, you yeah, know. Much, much longer hair, but... Um, uh, I've seen pictures of you when you were around that area. You looked a bit like Mark Boland with less curly hair. Yeah, oh, th- Chidge, thank you. That's, that's no, you did. You're a good-looking lad. No, no, I did. I, 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 uh, 
I attempted to um, to dress in the uh, in the the trendy fashions, yes, and wore and had high heels, which nearly everybody did. And you think, oh, I'm much taller, and of course everybody else was much taller, so it made no difference whatsoever. I've got a terrible pair of uh, of uh, Anello and David, but and a, a Dulce's pair of, of shoes. I've still kept actually, just because I can't believe I ever wore them. But um, uh, no, I tended to. Um, I tended to not run on the pitch because my one attempt at doing so, I remember I got hit very hard by uh, a policeman. And I your collar failed, mate. And yeah, yeah. And I thought, remember thinking, Jonathan, this is such, such a stupid idea. But it was interesting that they made such an enormous fuss of the wall being knocked down. And yet the few seasons before when we were elbowed out of the FA Cup, when the wall fell down, it wasn't wasn't mentioned. But at this period, at this time, the, the major thing that people used to say was, I'm going on the pitch. It was a, everybody did it. It was a kind of thing that you just did. You ran on the pitch. Everybody said, and so so. Why? 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 Why was that? Why was that? Because it was like a, a rite of passage, wasn't it? It was something you 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 could do it and say, look, I got to the opposition. Look, I got the other end. Look, I, I'm waving at you. Look here, I. It was because it, it's it's a kids thing, isn't it? If you look at so many of those people on on the pitch were kids, but amidst them there were other people who wanted to fight other people, and that was the other aspect of it but so the i mean you know, we're going to get onto it but uh, uh, ultimately the number of times it wasn't mentioned as much but the number of times that the 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 the, the pitch was invaded i mean cricket had the same problem everybody constant they let you round the the edge and you took advantage of it oh, and you they had they, they had freakers as john arlott famously described them <laughs> he called them freakers yes didn't <laughs> But that was that was a kind of part of the of the era is that the, the, you everybody felt, oh, I'm going to run on the pitch. I'll run. I'll run. I'll, I remember one bloke said to me at Lord saying, I'm going to run. I'm going to run all the way around. Why? Well, because I can. You know, it was a kind of, you know, what, you know, what are we? We're, we're 18. You're 17. You think, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, great. Wow. But, no. you know, but, so it was that that was the feel of it. But in this instance, yes, there were. There were big fights going on. That was the other thing: is you get the opposition support. Well, they want to do the same. They want to have fights with the because Chelsea have got such a reputation. But yet, at the same time, the the fans were actually phenomenal. This is the other thing to remember: the support at that period and support all the way through. Chelsea have always been supported away wonderfully. You know, to go and watch watch away is a completely different experience than watching at the bridge, even now as well. Whether we'll ever have this again, oh my God, what a prospect. We may not ever have this. But the support, the away support at, at Orient, I'm sure I wasn't at the, at the game, but I'm sure that it was, it was uh, well, once again, but I might have been at the game. I can't you, you remember. Probably were, you probably I were, Jonathan. I probably <laughs> was. This is the trouble with these bloody things. I keep thinking, oh, yeah, God, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I was che- Oh, yeah, God, I was there. But anyway, but it's it likely I was because it would have been before uni. We'd gone back and it was August. So the, it's probably, I probably was there. But um, I, I, I don't remember. the. I remember the running on the pitch again at the end. But, but my attitude at the time was very much a... I don't want to get involved in this. I'm sorry. I, I value my body too much. I don't want to get. So I would. I'm afraid I'd. I'd flee as quickly as I could from these things. But. Um, uh, but yeah. But, but it, part of it was, as I say, was the support was so um, excellent, and also this scarf-based thing that I really wish they'd get back to. I loved it. So I'm going on a bit here, but I just loved the whole process of of a, a scarf on your wrist, which was part of almost, you know, being a. Um, a Bay City, ro- Bay City roller was it? You know that whole thing with the big flared trousers, and and also so when when you when a song was sung, all the scarves were held up, which was a great sight. It was great to be part of it. It's just something I don't know why that's gone 
because it was it, even now it would just be, look so fantastic to have all your supporters with that sea of scarves. I mean, they do it automatically at the cop. But, you know, why why we've given it up, I don't know. And people didn't need to wear them around their neck, which you could they just wear them on your wrist. I don't know why that's disappeared. But, uh, you know, it's it's part it's partly to do with so many people wanted to fight other people, but and other people wanted to fight them. And then that was a part of the culture, but also partly because everybody was it was a kind of different attitude was, yeah, we can be part of this. We can run on the pitch. We can we can touch the players. We can do this. And after a bit, of course, the FA just frowned on it completely, as we found when we will we will we will get to that. We will yeah. get to that at the end because it, yeah. it was ver- a very famous incident of what very Jonathan's famous. talking about happened yeah. in the last home match against Hull. Yeah. Now you're a little bit younger there. than you're a little bit younger than Jonathan Mark, uh, but we, were you at Brisbane Road for the first match? You I, were I good man. Uh, and, and the thing about Brisbane Road, Jonathan, you know, mentioned it earlier. The walls always seem to come down at Brisbane Road. I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't. I don't. Yeah, we played them in the FA Cup. Um, I think. The following season, the Neil will draw. The walls came down again. So I, I think it might be about the design. Um, I think there was no hooligism that day. Good Chelsea following. I think it was more Jock Finneson scored a late winner, two minutes from time. Yeah. You know, and it was that youthful exuberance of you know Chelsea winning first day of the season. People ran on the pitch to celebrate. There was no hooliganism. Uh, just unfortunate. The side stand is where the wall came down. Um, and it was just the animals thing was from Brian Winston, their chairman. Yeah. Uh, and although he said you can't hold a club responsible for their supporters, some of whom behave like animals, he was actually making reference to the team. He was calling our players animals. Yeah, but well, they kicked um, Laurie Cunningham, which is yeah, a good, good idea because he was very good. He was a very good player, Laurie Cunningham. Uh, and if you've not seen it, there's a brilliant documentary yeah, o- online about Laurie Cunningham. Brilliant player. But we had three players booked that day. We had Ray Lewington booked. We had Gary Stanley booked. And we had David Hay booked, all for fouling Laurie Cunningham. So he actually barred Eddie McCready from going into the director's box after the game, you know, which was an unusual thing at the time because there was that etiquette at football clubs that doesn't matter what happened on the pitch everyone shook hands afterwards and had a drink in, in, in the boardroom I think where there was fighting on the pitch was the next game which was Millwall away and there, there was certainly fighting that day yeah. well that, that was interesting because I mean you know we had had a good start we were unbeaten for the first few matches we were uh, top of the league uh and as you, I mean, actually, just very quickly, the, the, no, I'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, yeah, the Millwall game, first defeat uh, away. Um, I have a suspicion that a mutual friend, Al Gregg, was at that match because I think that, that, that might have been one of his first matches. I remember uh, in his book, uh, The Wrong Outfit, he describes that he got in, he was in the wrong end. He was in the bloody Millwall home end and he had to get marched around. Were you at the Millwall match, Mark? No, I wasn't. And I think probably from a couple of friends I spoke to today, I'm probably glad I wasn't. Yeah. And, and if you've read John King's Football Factory, yeah. having read it and having listened to my friends today tell me all about Millwall that day, you know, you know I remember John King talking about the Football Factory and Millwall fans on housing estates. And like the two dear friends of mine, you know, I've been going football with them probably about the last 40 years, uh, Dan Ford and Chris Heffernan. They both went that day. Uh, one described it as scary. And the other described it as very hairy. Um, they came out of the station at New Cross. Um, they described all the housing estates surrounding sort of New Cross station on the way down to the den. And literally at random estates, Millwall fans coming out of every estate. So you get past one estate and then there's another, another, another one of them further down. And like Chris, what you said to me today, the one thing that he remembered from that is, and I don't know if you've ever been to the old den, um, the away end is at Ilderson Road and there's like an alleyway that goes down to the, to the way end and it's all horrible, corrugated fencing, etc. 
And Chris said this young lad runs past him, you know, with absolute fear in his eyes. And what we were taught at such a young age is if they're in trouble, what you should do, you should ask a policeman. So he goes up to the nearest policeman and says, excuse me, officer, you know, absolutely terrorised. Can you tell me where the away end is? And the policeman goes, there isn't one. (laughs) (laughs) Very pertinent. And Um, and the other thing that day was, um, Chris was saying, he brought his girlfriend to the game that day. You know, and I thought you brought your girlfriend to Millwall away. <laughs> apparently, apparently she wanted to go to the game, and like his best friend brought his girlfriend as well to the game, and they were in the Alton Road end, and they just said actually the policeman was right. There was no away end. No. You, know, uh, you know, and I think even before half time, a Millwall were three nil up. I think they were clapping the Millwall gold purely in Sydney just for their own, their own safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think on that day. Um, you know, the suicide squad of Chelsea fans, bless them, they went in the home end. You know, you know, so the cold blow lane end was the home end at Millwall. And, I've, and, I've heard Martin and Danny, uh, you know, Danny Hark is talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And I made down the same. I said, what happened after the game then? Uh, well, you just took your head down and they quite understandably left before the end of the game and they just saw a bus when it came out. You know, didn't know where the bus was going, just jumped on the bus, yeah, get out yeah. of Dodge, and I think they were delighted it pulled up at New Crossgate Station. They jumped on the train. They got far enough away and they adjourned to the nearest pub. You know, a yes, really indeed. scary, hairy experience. Like you said, when yeah. you're walking down to the ground and all you can see is graffiti saying, Chelsea fans will die. Yeah, and they meant it, actually, as they, well. They That's the thing. It, yes. I mean, look, talking of the fans, I mean, there are all sorts. Of, the other interesting thing that caught my eye about the, the beginning of the season, Mark, which which you do describe in the book, uh, was this whole idea? Maybe you could just, you know, talk talk the listeners through this a little bit. I don't know if Jonathan knows this. I, I mean, maybe he, he he was dipping his hand in his pocket. But the supporters, knowing how parlous the club's finances were, put their hands in their pockets, and there was a lot of rallying around to raise money for the club. But some of them was, were based on the number of goals we scored, weren't they? It was. It was called Cash for Chelsea. Um, <clears throat> and when I was researching the book, I tried and had no success. Google, Facebook, whatever. There was five Chelsea season ticket holders. And again, if anyone listening knows who they are, I think pat them on the back. They did a marvellous thing at the time. Ted Bailey, Ian Bailey, John Ferrand, Angus Greve and Tom Tremblay. They set up this thing called Cash for Chelsea where you donated money for every point earned. And they set out at the start of the season to raise £100,000. But what they also had after every home game like the boxing style bins where you put money in as appreciation. They called, yeah. they were called nobbins. Yeah. See, there you go. There's another knob joke for your chidge tonight. Lovely. Love a knob gag. You know me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So after each game, fans could throw their loose change in as well. And it was, this is a true story. So I was trying to research the book, trying to track these guys down. And the guys I mentioned earlier, the pub we drink in is, yeah, people that know me is the Clarence North End Road, old school drinker, you know, you know, it probably looks like a, a pub from the Sweeney and probably hasn't been decorated since it was filmed in there, if it ever was. And I was telling sort of guys I drink with um, about the book and I talked about this uh, and I said there was this other person, you know, and she appeared in the Southampton programme and her name was Julie Stone. And she appeared on the back page of the Southampton programme as she'd done a sponsored walk from Birmingham to Worcester and had raised £63 for cash for Chelsea. And one of those strange twists of fate, whatever guy I know called Gary Gray was in the pub that evening and said you know that person you were looking for she's in the beer garden and I, I just thought it was a wind up but actually she was in the beer garden and if you have bought the Eddie Mac book 
you know, you'll find that she's done a chapter in there all about Castro Chelsea. You know, there's about 10 pages in there. And, you know, she talks about Castro Chelsea, the wonderful thing they did. Excellent stuff. Uh, Jonathan, you remember that by the looks of it. Well, I remember contributing. I'm always very good um, throwing the few spare coppers I have about my person. The, cop- the odd sixpence finds its way into a little bin for Chelsea. Um, my, I, I just wanted to emphasise how completely pressurised the season was uh, for the manager and the team. He didn't obviously pass it on to the team, neither did the directors, because if they hadn't got promoted, what on earth would have happened to the club? It would have gone uh, into administration, obviously, but who would have bought it? Who would have been responsible? How would they? The the pressure was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, well, I, I, they managed it, not to pass that on to the fans, though. The fans were very unaware because the, they were playing well. I think. But, yeah, uh, yes, you know, well, we'll, we'll, really I want to talk. Oh, the, the good start really contributed, didn't it? Yeah, uh, and and, and the whole. Point. Yeah. And the whole and the whole scene. I mean, this is something I want to pick up on actually when we kind of summarise and reflect on all of this, and and actually in particular Eddie Mac's uh, part in that, because I think in in so many respects, Jonathan, he was responsible for for that. And actually, he says in the interview that Mark did with him that you know he he made sure that he could shield the players from that as much as possible. You know, he he had a very light touch with them. Yeah. yeah. You know, made sure that they were having fun. A lot of them young kids, of course. So. You know, he had a big part to play in that. Um, right, just to kind of get back to the, the timeline, as it were. I mean, basically, we had a great start to the season. We didn't lose very much. We uh, won a lot of games, um, apart from the Millwall one. Uh, we were top of the table. Um, it was a good kind of start, uh, really, for the first two or three months of the season. The only blip on the horizon, or the only blip uh, along the way, really, uh, was losing to Arsenal in the League Cup. Um, where basically Sammy Nelson, if you remember, I don't know if anybody remembers Sammy. I do. Northern Horrib- Irish. Northern Irish. Horrible player. Northern Irish. Kick- kicking lumps out of Gary Locke and Brian Basson, who who never played for us again. Do you remember? Do you remember that, J.K.? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was at that game. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, I'd forgotten how decent a player Basson was actually, and yeah, uh, because of course he became, uh, didn't he become the players? Um, representative to, uh, for the players union um uh, and and he's sort of slightly more remembered for that but uh, um he uh he, he was a winger i was got the, the i thought he was a midfield player but of course he was a winger in the same way that kenny swain who ended up playing fullback for villa when they won the champions league was um was a, a very decent goal scorer i was a big fan of kenny swain's i thought he was a terrific player and can I just apologise briefly? I said I said last week that Wilkins wasn't my favourite. I think what I meant about that was was that I, he never got stuck in Butch. He never because he was he was always he had other people. It wasn't his it. job, mate? No, it wasn't. I know, I know, I know. But I'm I'm such I'm such a, a um, I'm not a purist. You can just see all the patterns I like. I like Mickey Thomas. <coughs> I like Johnny Bumstead. I like um, I like players who. Um, uh, who are, are really play midfield with a kind of grit with them. And he wasn't. He was a class act, and his his ability to play absolutely. I tell you, also the other play he reminded me of, except without the grit, was Dennis Wise was brilliant at finding people with passes. One of Dennis Wise's great strengths, as well as being very tenacious and slightly filthy, was his ability to spot players and deliver passes absolutely on uh, you know within a slide rule onto their feet. And Wilkins was absolutely the same and integral to the way the way that I never knew that Liverpool have made this uh, 
offer for him, Mark. Never knew that. QPR did as well, Jonathan. Because QPR, we talked about last week, uh, they nearly won the league and they were in the UEFA Cup the following season. So they they tried to buy Ray Wilkins as well. They 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 were the two offers Chelsea Chelsea turned down. Yeah. yeah, Well, well, this this is something that was really a positive thing for the board. It's quite interesting that, isn't it? Yeah. This is something I wanted to talk about. Actually, it's a good time to bring it in because um, I I wanted to, you know, when I kind of went off on a different tangent. But Chelsea's starting eleven, which which, and the thing that interests me most about this season, it was very consistent on the whole. Uh, you know, team selection. Benetti in goal, Gary Locke, fullback, or, and Graham Wilkins, fullbacks. Steve Wicks, David Hay, Mickey Droy came in as well, obviously. Gary Stanley, Ian Britton, Ray Wilkins, Steve Finiston, Ray Lewington, Kenny Swain. And and, and what really uh, intrigued me was the fact that Eddie Mack, I mean, to pick up on your point, JK, um, he wanted to build the team around Ray Wilkins, but he wanted Ray Wilkins to play further forward and to support or basically to exploit the holes that two strikers two would strikers. make yeah, yeah, because they would make these runs. But really he, he was worried about he was worried about the fact that Ray liked to also get back and, and defend and tackle. And this is where, where Ray Lewington came in because he wanted a tank. Uh, but he was also yeah. concerned about... That's what he called him. He called him the tank. And Ray Lewington could tackle. But he also needed the width. So he basically had Gary Stanley and Ian Britton playing as kind of wide midfield players, getting up and down. So basically what, what, what he... And he even admits this in the interview, he basically invented four diamond two. Yeah. You know, a holding, a holding midfield player, a, a, a very advanced midfield player, Ray Wilkins kind of buzzing around the strikers, and, and uh, two what we would call wing-backs, you know, I suppose. You know, well, basically... He found it very difficult to pick them up. And, and they did. They were used to. And it and it worked like a treat, didn't it, Mark? I mean, we were really, I mean, yeah. we were getting a lot of plaudits, weren't we? For it, it was the start throughout of the season. Yeah, you know, Jonathan's made reference to wing backs. Yeah, you also had Graham Wilkins and Gary Locke bombing down the the wings as well. It wasn't uncommon to see Gary Locke further up the pitch than the Ian Britton. Yeah, and I think that was another key part of yeah that season is like Ray played every game, but Gary Locke played every game as well, and you know he played a key key part in that season. But again, that there was a sign. You talk about the Arsenal game. We went into that game on a good run and, and confident. Arsenal had like two defeats before that cup game. I think they'd had a hammering at Filbert Street by, by Leicester City 4-1. And Eddie McCready had basically said before the game, you know, you know, between 1960 and 1970, we won eight out of 10 games at Highbury. And I should know, he said, I played in them. Yeah. <laughs> so he actually went out to Highbury to attack. And I, I was there and I was just horrible. Like that tackle by Sammy Nelson on Brian Basson was a dreadful tackle. Never got booked for it. Never got booked. You know. And then later, you made reference to it. He then fouled Gary Locke with 10 minutes to go, and Gary Locke had to go off. So we paid most part of the last 10 minutes with 10 men. And it was a, it was a niggly game that night. So despite Ray Wilkins having the flair and pushing forward, that was a scrappy London derby. There was pushing, there was shoving, there was flying tackles, lots of off the ball incident, lots of booking. It was yeah. a proper London Cup mm. tie. And I think I think we were unlucky to lose Arsenal that night. I think we played really well. Interesting stuff. Um, we picked ourselves up again, uh, and uh, a, a big test, of course, was the away match. Uh, up at Trent Bridge, uh, you know, against Nottingham Forest, Cluffs, Nottingham Forest. I'm always intrigued by our our, our matches with Forest uh, around this era because, of course, a couple of years later, Forest go on and win the league and, and then the European Cup. And we all know about Brian Clough and that team. Uh, the thing that intrigues me about this, I, I don't know. Put your hands up if either of you were there. 
at the forest game. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, neither of you were there. The city ground. Sorry. You said yeah. The yeah, city you know, ground. Neil, I meant the city. Neil Smith ground. has told me all about that day. Well, yeah. okay. This is what I wanted to ask. Yeah. Just raise your hand as to, as to who wants to answer it. Now it was one-one. Brian Clough was very impressed. Said Chelsea were a superb team. But actually, there was a lot of uh, a lot of supporters got on the pitch. Now, I've always been told, certainly by Psycho Phil, amongst a few other friends, probably Smithy is one of them, that this is the occasion where uh, there was quite a big off with the Forest and the Chelsea fans, and a lot of Forest fans ended up in the River Trent. Is this the match, Mark, or have I got this mixed up no, with another one? That, that's what I'd heard, because it was a tradition okay. you know, that Forest <laughs> used to say they'd throw you in the Trent. Uh, and on this particular day... Um, the home end at Forest that day was not infiltrated by Chelsea fans. It was all Chelsea fans. <laughs> you know, so Forest had to relocate their home end to another part of the ground because it was just full of... You know, Chelsea, well, it was organised, I don't know. And that's what Neil Smith told me. And also after the game, instead of Chelsea fans being thrown in the trend, I think a few Forest fans end up there. Brilliant. I, I had a feeling it was that one. Uh, now, the next big test uh, was against Wolves. We basically duked it out with Wolves, who had also got relegated quite recently, I think, and we're a decent side. John Will, uh, John Richards always seemed to score against us, but we play Wolves at the bridge, uh, I think it was in December, early December, uh, and already this is kind of, you know, top versus second match, big, big match, no pun intended, because it, it was on the big match. Um, it finishes 3-0. We come back from behind, actually. We were 3-1 behind at one stage. Of course, John Richards scored. I think he scored two and Bobby Gould. But that's not the thing that drew, drew my attention. Um, I suspect, given that you were probably in the East Stand, Jonathan, were you aware of the presence of Dr. Henry Kissinger and his Secret Service men? Yes, indeed. I thought you might have been. Indeed, we all were. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of pointing went on. Isn't that Henry Kissinger down there? Oh, isn't that? Yeah, you know. But it was. I think it was the fact he was surrounded by a rather large number of uh, of bodyguards that made it pretty obvious. You kept standing up. Um, incidents taking any incident. I'm not sure they knew what an incident was. But what happened if, when someone shouted "shoot"? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that was. Uh, that was that would have been a goodie, but um, uh, yeah. But I, it was because I was in the um, so I was in the East Stand Upper, but I was actually almost on the halfway line. So they were all down. You could see them below. He was practically in the front row, wasn't he? All the pictures mm. that were taken of him up there. But um, he, yes, he must. Have, I thought he'd have come away from there being a being a football fan uh, after three three. But he probably was anyway because he was German, wasn't he? So he'd probably uh, he'd probably been watching football for most of his youth. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was—I was just wondering if he was there in case you know a big ruck happened, and he was there to kind of you know to discuss mitigate. a peace negotiation or yeah, something. Any kind of peace. They could have used them after the game. There was trouble at there was trouble at Notting Hill Gate Station after that game. Really? Sure that, that's the way Henry went home. Yeah. Mm, interesting stuff. It was a—it was a big match though, and we did all right. I mean, we basically finished the year uh, top place in the league, which is good. Um, we had a very happy New Year as we thumped. Uh, Hereford 5-1 uh, and uh, uh, Ray Wilkins scores that amazing chip which I, I'm sure you both both remember very very well uh, and then we're into the new year and, and, and again you know the league form continues apace we're still doing very very well uh, the only blip on in the new year really uh, because of course this is the thing that staggers me actually and it's really interesting to you know uh, reacquaint oneself uh, with these old seasons and not not least uh, you know, checking out the uh, the attendances uh, and all of that kind of thing, and you suddenly realise just how 
how big and important the FA Cup was still in the 70s, unlike it is now, where people tend to long it off. In those days, it was it was just massive, absolutely massive. And of course, we're still in the same league as uh, Southampton. So, we, uh, although they were the FA Cup holders at the time, so we would have we would have expected us we would have expected to win. Let's be honest. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't turn out like that, does it, Jonathan? Um, I have no recollection at all of this match. Well, we drew we drew one all with them uh, in the you know at home. In, in this is the third round of the FA Cup, yeah, so yeah, f- yeah, first round yeah, proper. Yeah. And they and then 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 we have to go down to the Dell and play them in a replay. Um, and unfortunately, it's 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 we lose three nil, which was a bit of a blow. Did did, did Aussie in score? extra time? Did Aussie score? Chich? I can't remember. No, uh, Ted McDougall. Uh, it was basically. Yeah, it was nil-nil uh, for, for 90 minutes. And then uh, in extra time, McDougall scored, Shannon scored, and David Peach scored a penalty. Ozzy uh, was playing. They were aware where, in fact, it was A, an enormous money spinner. But there was still that feeling about the FA Cup that somehow it was a, a, a more special trophy than actually winning the uh, the first the league title. Yeah. Which um, I, I've never quite understood why that happened. But... Um, uh, that was the kind of magic of it. I remember the the uh, even Stanley Matthews saying this was the greatest trophy ever to win, and you thought, well, surely winning the league would have been up there. But no, it was it had a it had a magic. Um, I think because of the uncertainty of it, uh, I don't know. It just was in the psyche at the time. Yes, yeah, so it was a big blow. Um, but uh, I no, I've expunged that one completely. That's gone. I, Sadly, I, I remember I remember it well, Chidge. Ah. Yeah, uh, th- th- several things I remember about it. First, it was a forty-two thousand crowd there that night. Absolutely huge crowd. Yeah, you know, when you think an FA Cup was that because replay. of Aussie? Because that of Aussie? Do you think? Uh, I, 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 I think it was a momentum as well because we got a draw um, at Southampton, so that was a good result. We brought them back to the bridge, and I think Chelsea fans always have loved the FA Cup and the Osgood factor. The fact we had a home replay, we were playing. More than 42,000 there. Like I went, go, go back there at the South that night, the Fulham game, throughout the evening. And the other thing I remember about it, um, there was a gentleman called Ronald Markham, Romark, Romark the magician. And he predicted in the third round um, what had happened to Chelsea is what happened to Crystal Palace the previous season. And he put a curse on Crystal Palace after they got to the last stage and he put a curse on Chelsea. And he said Southampton would knock Chelsea out of the FA Cup and Chelsea would fail to get promotion. So... He got one right. He didn't get the other one right, quite, quite fortunately. <laughs> and again, if you yeah. Google Ronald Markham, you'll find it. You know, if you could see into the future, he wouldn't have crashed that car of his into the back of a police van and get arrested. But that's <laughs> <laughs> he was a psychic. That's what I remember. Um, Jim McCallio called it right. He said before the game that Southampton would win an extra time. You know, because we were a young side, they were a lot more experienced, and he was proved right. We just ran out of steam. But over the 90 minutes, we were much better than Southampton at the bridge that night. We were really unlucky. It was really disappointing to get knocked out. Yeah, I bet it was. Um, I mean, you know, the other interesting things that occurred to me around this time was uh, just just three three things that I'll hit you with. One was uh, they increased the tickets uh, from 50p up to a pound, which made me hoop with laughter. Only a pound, Chelsea tickets. Uh, yeah, the other thing, of course, pound in that era, Chidge, you could. What's well, a double? Double in you, you know increase, isn't it? Yeah, but for a pound, you could give a slap up meal in Soho. You could you could spend the night with the the lot of money in those the days. Four of your choice, you could then go to the Ritz and uh, and um, you know 
dance the night away and come back tea. in a handsome cab for a quid. Bloody hell, Jidge. Quid? Oh. So there's a lot of money in those days. So they hiked the prices up, um, which basically I would imagine would have been seen as capitalising on the fact that we were getting very good attendances by now. They were way back up again. But the other thing is watching a lot of these, watching a lot of these um, old clips on YouTube today, as I was, the the pitch, unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was shocking. For everybody, it, it was shocking for everybody, Chidge. It was the ball. But ours seemed particularly bad. Constantly being, you know, you put pressing forward and it gets stuck, and you'd have to, and it would give an opportunity for some hairy ass defender to leap in because the ball had got stuck. And you'd, get, you'd see people leaping out of the way or trying to give as much back as they were about to receive from the defender. I mean, it's, it's no surprise that people got, got there were huge thwacking in, in injuries all the time or tackles because the ball was always being stuck in that, in that kind of, in, in winter when it was raining a lot. Yeah, the, nowadays it would never have been tolerated and the, the, the pitch would have been, it had been called off by the referee. But I just wanted to make a point about the, the, the huge numbers of people attending the games Yet the, I remember watching and thinking it's a complete from from my eerie up at the uh, up up in the the, uh, the top of the east stand was how it looked sold out and then you discover only forty three thousand had been and there was a theory at the time that there were huge turnstile cons going on and that people were people were pocketing the money that was a constant amongst the supporters and say you know bloody hell surely tonight it's look. It's 52,000. Surely there isn't a single gap anyway. It came back with, and the, a guy would make the announcement at the end, at the end 40,000. You go, what? No, but it's impossible. It's full. It's completely full. And the Chelsea stadium counter later moved to Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 the trouble was, I, I, I think it backfired. Um, they had a guy called um, Martin Spencer, who oh, Brian right. Mears had brought in from Stoy Hayward to help with the club's sort of debt. And um, Martin Spencer announced that price increase in the Orient programme. And, and it wasn't just ground admission. Uh, you know, juveniles went up every West End, East End. You know, you know, because Chelsea had an unusual pricing system then, whereby if you sit in the East End now, you've got upper, lower you know, and middle. And it's one price for each stand. Then you had centre, you know, front wings, rear centre, rear wings. It was like going to the theatre. You had, you had different, you had different prices. And did they wear binoculars, Mark? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Probably some did with our with our support back then. Oh, yeah, we did attract some beautiful people. Um, but yeah, the gates after suffered. Yeah, and I don't know whether that was a combination of the price increase and also we talked about the pitch because the pitch problems. You know, they went back before Christmas. Um, and what George Anstis, um, I think the groundsman at the time, said was in November, there was a lot of games we played and we used the game, uh, the pitch, Ian Hutchinson's testimonial. And in those days when FA Cup went to third replays, Brighton and Crystal Palace played a rather muddy, wet replay in November that by the time we played that Wolves game we talked about earlier, you know, the pitch was just covered in sand and it never recovered from that point in. The Southampton game, it rained. It was just muddy. But the Orient game was the worst of the lot. I've never seen a game like that Orient game until we played Norwich City in the 80s. That Orient game should never have been played. You know, Eddie McCready wanted the game called off. Yeah, he just said it was a farce. The referee refused to call the game off. The referee said at the time, the conditions deteriorated after the start. And if I'd called it off, I would have been laughed at. Oh, 
Dominic Cummings of referees. It was perfectly good when the match began. No, it wasn't. You know, the ball just got stuck in the mud. It didn't move that day. If you look back on your programmes, you see the two teams coming off at the end of the game. It's just mud everywhere. And there's a brilliant picture in the archives of George Anstis um, and Eddie McCready, and they are just surrounded by mud. You know, it's just, you know, just it's ridiculous. And there was um, a fan... And I mentioned him because we talked about Chelsea Independent. He used to write regularly in the letters page Chelsea, but called Kevin Ryan. And Kevin wrote into the club program, and he just basically said, "This is this is a farce, you know. Uh, th- these these are excuses of pitches that you're expecting the team to play on." And, and we were a good football side. We were a passing side, and the ball just got bogged down in the in the mud. And good old Kevin back then in 1977 suggested, you know, midwinter breaks and teams playing on artificial grass pitches. You know, he had, he had a lot of foresight, you know, did Kevin bless him. The other thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about the Wolves game, um, yeah, very tardy of me, it was the advert for the Dan's New Rose single in the Wolves oh. programme. The first ever punk single. Like, you know, Chelsea yeah. were ahead of the game having punks in their programmes. And punks in the stands as and well. And punks in the stands. Indeed. Kings Road and all that yeah. was where, it was all, where it was all hanging out. Um, we're going to go to a break. Uh, a couple of things before we do. Uh, the lovely I Saw Alan May's score. Uh, by the way, uh, mate, I should tell you that I, I showed the CFC UK WhatsApp group the wonderful T-shirt that you gave me with your Dar Saw Alan May score. And Kelvin Barker wet his pants with, with envy about that. And uh, he's in the market for one. You could probably do a good line flogging him to the CFC UK bunch in there. Am I right, Mark? Yeah. Oh, uh, what a brilliant T-shirt. No, definitely. <laughs> if, if you got that made up, he would shift a load of those. I know a number of people that buy that T-shirt. It's well, a brilliant T-shirt. Full credit to you. We'll put you in touch with Marco. Maybe you can yeah. get a line of them going when we ever do get back. Yeah. And actually, on that point, he says uh, that he was right. Of course, I'm sorry. I, I, got, I got the wrong specs on. That's my Dom- Dominic Cummings excuse for getting the uh, Southampton matches the wrong, wrong way around. He says, other way around, should we drew at the Dell. Exactly. The replay was at the bridge. Mickey Droy got fined for making the wanker sign at Ted McDougall. How about that? Knowledge. Uh, now, um, talking of knowledge um, and, and the old days, uh, the Chelsea special, of course, this series of podcasts I've, I've done, or series of interviews, really, I've done with Martin King and lots and lots of other players, some of them from this era, is really, really well worth a listen. Uh, we've done them with Kerry Dixon, Bobby Tambling, Chopper, Tommy Baldwin, Johnny Boyle, Johnny Bumpson, Gary Chivers, Colin Pates, Canners, and even Danny Eccles Harkins. So there we go. Now, if you want to download them, very easy. Go to chelseaspecial.podbean.com. Uh, they cost £2.99 each to download because we've shelled out a, quite a lot of money to get them all made, paying the players and all that kind of thing. So there you go. Go to chelseaspecial.podbean.com and then click on Buy Single Episode Now when you scroll down and find the ones you want. And then you can download it and listen. They're great fun. Chelseaspecial.com is the website and at Chelsea underscore special is the Twitter handle and it's also on Facebook. Right, after the break, we're going to be carrying on with the final furlong of the 1976-77 season. Fans, real I'm Jason Cundy, and you're listening to the Chelsea Football Fancast. Proper Chelsea. Footballfancast.com. Welcome back. This is the Chelsea Fancast. I'm Stanford Chidge, and uh, I've got with me, as ever, Mr. Jonathan Kidd. Whoop. 
and uh, also the incredibly erudite and I mean, it's just it's absolutely it's a real privilege just listening to to Mark Meehan who wrote this fantastic book about Eddie Mack and you know his, his knowledge is uh, encyclopedic so great without to have you peer, on the show Mark. without peer we can peerless speak. mate indeed indeed that's p e why use two words when one can do mate yes yes indeed uh, great to have mark on the show uh, and uh, we're kind of halfway through our our dissection of the 1976-77 season and uh, we're kind of really entering into the final furlong here chelsea are you know still pretty much top of the league um and uh, but we have some tough fixtures to come but before we get into that around this time uh, some very sad news happened didn't it mark when uh, peter houseman who i've kind of newly uh, found an admiration for through through doing these shows recently and seeing a lot of the footage from the time I suddenly realized actually what a good player he was but by this time he had left the club and he had been playing for oxford and of course he he dies tragically in uh, a road accident well i i hesitate to call it accident considering it was, you know, basically some posh bloke and his Maserati ploughed into Peter Hausman's car. But if you want to pick up the story, Mark. Yeah, really tragic. Peter Hausman, we talked about him on last week's show, only 31 years of age. He was coming back from a fundraising evening, you know, with his wife, Sally, and two close family friends, Alan and Janice Gillam. Yeah, and, you know, a speeding Maserati, you know, driven by the son of a, a Conservative MP, you know, crashed into the car. Six children were orphaned. As a result of that, you know, and the, the the car driver, you know, found guilty of four charges of causing death by dangerous driving and drink related charges, but never spent a day in prison. So, you know, justice wasn't served there. Um, so really sad. But I think what was remarkable is how Chelsea responded. You know, we talked last week how Chelsea being good in this crisis, you know, almost straight away. The funeral was like on the 25th of March. And I think the whole of the first team squad and former players attended the funeral. And then the following week, they held a benefit match for the Houseman children and the Gillam children. And nearly 17,000 spectators turned up at Stamford Bridge. And, and I was at the game that night and it was a um, the current Chelsea side against an old Chelsea side. And Eddie McCready, um, although he walked out with his current side, he then played you know, for the old boys against his side. And all the money raised, you know, went to that family. And there was an unusual thing on the night because George Best was meant to play in that game. And I don't know what happened with George, you know, but he didn't turn up. And at the last minute, um, I don't know why, but for some strange reason, maybe he was available. Alan Ball played in the game. So Alan Ball, you know, wore Houseman's number 11 shirt. And I think a few old school Chelsea thought probably, you know, if someone was going to wear the, the, the number 11 shirt was Alan Ball, probably the be- best person to do that. Yeah. So yeah, very sad occasion. And I think, I think soon after Chelsea also played Arsenal one Saturday morning when we had a free weekend and again, all the money then, you know, raised at that game also, you know, went, went to both families. And there was an unusual thing at the same time. And it's a name familiar to most Chelsea fans. We played Blackburn in I think the following home game. And there was a lovely letters page inside the programme and Chelsea fans, you know, eulogised about what a wonderful person, a wonderful player Peter Houseman was. And there was a beautiful letter. And if you've got your 76-7 programme collection at home, and I imagine many of you do, and I have mine here tonight. Uh, if you go into the letters page there, there's a gentleman called Neil Barnett. No way. Yeah, <laughs> kid you not. Yeah, and Neil loves his, writes, you know, loves his Chelsea, but he writes this beautiful letter, you know, a real tribute to Peter Houseman. Now, you know, I think it is one in the same Neil Barnett. Yeah. 
it's got to be. We talked talk last week offline. We, there was a letter in from a David Icke, and we wasn't sure who was that David Icke, but who knows, it might have been. But I think that was um, the Neil Barnett we know and love so well. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Mark. I think it, you know it needed to be needed to be said. As I said, I've I've, I've recently got a, a whole uh, you know different perspective on uh, on Peter Houseman, having been watching some of these old clips. Now, as I said, we're, we're beginning to get into the business end of the season. Uh, we're still riding high in the in the league, you know, top of the league, having a laugh, la di da di da. Um, but there are some concerns. Uh, we we lost three one away to Fulham, but we also lost four nil. Uh, to Charlton on April the 11th uh, and it and it looks like uh, Chelsea are beginning to wobble I mean the other thing that caught my eye about this Mark was the fact that um, well you can you can enlighten me on this but that you know basically Chelsea fans were, were setting fire to the valley <laughs> because they were rather disgruntled about being beaten 4-0 is this true it is it is true um, I was at, <laughs> I was at the valley that night I'll, I'll take you yeah we, we did have a bit of waddle but I, what what I should also say you know, in those days at Easter, you played three games. So we yeah. lost to Fulham on the Friday, but on the Saturday we had a bounce back and we beat Luton two 0 And that was we're going to talk Forest later, but that was a massive win for us because Luton were in the thick of the promotion race. Yeah, so we beat them two 0 So we thought we were back on track. And again, yeah, if you can find it on video, there's an absolutely brilliant goal by John Sparrow in that game. Uh, and the Sunday papers the next day said Sparrow's arrow. And I Sparrow's just love, arrow. love that headline. Brilliant headline. So we went into the Monday game, Charlton, full of confidence. Uh, and as was the way, we talked about the Nottingham Forest game earlier. So I was at the Valley that night and I was in the away fans end. And if ever anyone had been to the Old Valley, absolutely massive old stadium, used to take 80,000. So I was in the away end, but soon realised, I think most other people did as well, that most of the Chelsea fans had relocated to the home end. So a quick climb <laughs> over a fence. And I think most Chelsea fans ended up in the home end. But Charlton that night, you know, absolutely destroyed us. I think Mike Flanagan got a hat-trick. And it was a bit cold that night, and I, I don't know why, but in the second half, like Jonathan said at the start about Orient, sometimes people ran on the pitch. Um, so instead of running on the pitch, they decided to set fire to everything surrounding the pitch. You know, so the fires started up on the away terracing. You know, people set fires to programmes, newspapers, woods. And yeah, there, there was a serious fire on the terraces and then came outside after the game. Uh, and just Chelsea fans, you know, went on the, the rampage, you know, they kicked in the turnstiles. They broke every window. You know, in there was, there was a supporters club behind the away end at the Valley. They broke every window in there. And even all the way down to Charlton Station, you know, the houses, windows, it was absolutely vandalism, you know, everywhere, everywhere. And what my memory of that is, like, um, I was trying to get home, got on the train at Charlton Station, and then they decided to smash the train up and pull the emergency cord. And I just wanted to get home after seeing our team getting spanked 4-0. And we got thrown out, and apologies if you live here, I got thrown out of a station. I remember to this day called Mays Hill. I was 14 years of age. I had no idea where Mays Hill was in South London. I had no idea how I'd get home. One thing I knew for certain, the police wasn't letting anybody, you know, back you know, on that train or any time soon. So I had to somehow find my way home from Charlton to sort of northwest London about 10 o'clock at night. You know, so, no, I haven't got great memories of that game. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Do you remember that, Jonathan? Uh, I remember the loss, but uh, I, I didn't attend. But the, the situation of being thrown out of trains um, and uh, luckily always having um, 
two pennies for the uh, for the phone box was always something that I was always made sure that I kept in my pocket. And my dad was very good at if he was about picking me up wherever I was. And uh, and he always seemed to understand. I always say um, I've fled. There's people being having their heads kicked in around me and I'm hiding any chance you could meet me somewhere. And uh, and he'd go, oh, OK, I suppose. Yeah, I'll have a go. And we'd find a, um, a landmark somewhere and he'd pick me up. But um, um, now I've now remembered, of course, I was at the Southampton FA Cup game, the loss. Once again, I've just, you know, the, the pain has hit me. Um, but uh, and I was at the uh, at the Fulham game when we lost 3-1 as well. But the Charlton game, I definitely wasn't at because I don't remember um, uh, that. Well, the same thing, Mark, if we ever if we were ever any sign of us losing, I knew there'd be trouble and I would am afraid leave early which isn't, you know, something I've, I've, I've done at all of, over the last few years. On, but, on, uh, on a kind of related or unrelated point, JK, I mean, yeah. do, do you, you know, I mean, you know, we're, we're nearly, we're, we're the business end of the season. We've been top for most of it. You know, I would imagine you're both thinking we're going to we're gonna go back up. You must be really excited. And then there was a bit of a wobble around this time. Did you, did yeah, you yeah, start getting a bit shrink? Yeah, completely, yeah. completely. But also, you've, you know, you've been watching, I've been watching, Watching them since I was, you know, little since I'm bloody old four. I don't remember any of it, you know. But nonetheless, the the the, the horrors of having Doherty um, decide that because they'd all been out to a night in Blackpool that he wouldn't bother to pick any of the first team and them losing it, it. Nothing was to me having a having the season fall apart, having Osgood not bothering, or having players just games they should have won. It, it you know it enters into your soul after a bit, and you just think. Yeah, that they may very well blow this. Yeah, particularly because also particularly because it was four nil. But I think as as Mark said in the book, with the fact is Eddie's interview was then is he 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 decided he thought they were they got tired. He thought they'd got knackered at this stage of the season. And well, so, it, well, he, so he attempts then he brings Charlie Crook in. That's right, masterstroke. So, yeah, absolutely. But the the clear thing that comes out of this season is that McCready is a deep thinker yes. about the game. Yes, yes, as lots of his. Scott's contemporaries have been all over the the since the formation of the game. There was a period where Scots were the best, the best uh, tacticians, and people came from all over Europe to discuss how. Well, Shankly, Steen, Busby, Ferguson. Yeah, but even though, but going even further back, Chidge into the thirties, and even called ahead, and and then earlier than that, there were trainers that were um, that were just completely ahead of their time, who were from Scotland. They somehow they had a view of how to play passing games when people were scrumming, just um, playing different, playing people out of position, changing the setup to confuse people. So he was clearly a great, great thinker, which in fact brings into perspective the what happens at the end of the season, uh, the horrors of what happened between him and the yeah, board, well, we, which we will get we'll, on to. We will the get time, on. In the meantime, the masterstroke is he, he brings Charlie Cook in, who, he hasn't, who hasn't played at all, and uh, Cook is absolutely brilliant and slows the game down because he feels that they're, they're really running out of steam. And he's watching it and just trying to find a way of dealing with it, which is the kind of thing that Hiddink used to do, of course. I think I love the way that Hiddink dealt with uh, Barcelona by playing Essien at right back to stop um, uh, Roberto Carlos from maraudering down the left wing, which he said he couldn't deal with. That kind of thing that a manager thinks of to do. And also the, the knowledge when we had from, from your bookmark where they're saying that he he would have 
the, the scout, the guy that he employed, whose name escapes me, I can't remember, who was that, Mark? And the, Is it Eddie Bailey? Eddie, yeah, uh, yeah, to actually give him a, uh, um, an idea of how the opposition lined up for free kicks, corners and everything was so ahead of its time. And my, my, my despair of all of this is I really think that this was a period where English clubs were really ahead of the rest of Europe, as it will be proven by Forrest and Liverpool winning everything. And if we'd managed to have a kind of, of um, I don't know, just, just level-headed approach to stuff, even getting rid of the team that we had before, which was absolutely brilliant. I mean, let's not, let's not, let's not, um, uh, um, there are not enough superlatives to describe the, the team that he assembled, that Sexton had assembled with Hudson and Webb and, uh, and Osgood and uh, the team that won the European Cup Winners' Cup was I think would have won the European Championship in the following if they kept them together or just approached it from a, a slightly different view, which wasn't the stand. If they hadn't built the stand, they'd have ended up, they'd have done what Forrest did and what Liverpool did because the players were outstanding. I can't tell you the difference between between the, the, the genius of some of those players in some of those games was absolutely wonderful. So to actually suddenly see a side a side of youth getting better and better with a man clearly the top of his game as McCready, as is proven by this really simple thing of bringing in a man of great experience in Cook, who then runs it, slows it down, and he plays a. Uh, he's still got the two centre forwards, and they then have a much easier run in towards the end, and they get promotion when there was a possibility of them dipping. Was uh, beautifully revealing in Mark's book because I had no idea. I know I'm just attending the games going, why are they why are they all falling apart? Why is it happening? Then to have this piece of genius, which you don't aren't really aware of, you go, Daniel he's brought Cook back in. Why? And Cook slows it down, runs it, bosses the game, and they get promoted. Well I, th- I thought I thought it was brilliant. And and I mean what was also fantastic, Mark, it wasn't just uh bringing in Charlie Cook to kind of play the quarterback role and slow it down. He brought him in for Gary Stanley. So he kind of had him per se on the on on the wing, but uh, he kept Ray Lewington in, which was vital, so that we had some beef in midfield. But he also he also um, rested Kenny Swain, who of course had had a brilliant season up till then as a superb player. And he brings in a very young, kind of eight seventeen eighteen year old Tommy Langley. But it it, it works uh, to a treat, doesn't it? Because the next game is against Forest. This is the sixteenth of April. Uh, and Forrester there or thereabouts in the in the race for the for the you know the promotion spots. Uh, so yeah, I mean, really, really key game against Forrest, and that was the first time he tries, you know, you know, with Charlie Cook and Tommy Langley in the team, and it works a treat, J.K. And we they, win they two one. Though, don't they? With through Martin O'Neill. What's astonishing about the Forrest side is nearly all of them are the same team that won the won the European Cup in, in two years' time. If you look at them, I know. I mean, remarkable. Just, 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 just read out. I mean, basically, I'll read out the, the squad that won the Euro, you know the players that play, we played against that night or that day that ended up going on to win the uh, the European Cup and the league, of course, and everything else. Anderson, Frank Clark, Larry Lloyd, Ian Bowyer, John McGovern, Martin O'Neill, Peter With, Tony Woodcock, Johnny Robertson. So basically, all but two of that side went on and won the European Cup. Yeah frightening isn't it so anyway i think i th- my, my point really is jk is that winning that match was absolutely fundamental to us i mean i know i know that the the next kind of really really key match is the one against wolves where uh we need a point to go up 
uh, away, and it's a that's a very very tricky match uh, in terms of the run in. And people say, well, obviously, obviously, you know, we did get promoted the, that that day because we we drew one one, but. I think it's that Forest match that that was really really key because we then go on we draw we draw nil nil with Oldham well, they, and we lose one nil to Burnley. Forest finished third, so if they they did uh, they did if they they did uh, uh, if they'd won they'd have been above us and then we then drew against Oldham after that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we then we then lost to Burnley, so we were on a bit of a dip. But then luckily the last three games it was a, a huge win against Sheffield United. Uh, so, so, so we the momentum was main was 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 regained after at the end of that. So, what what do you? I mean, were you there on yeah, on, on the day? I, I have to say, in the same way that Luton game I mentioned, that Forest game was so important. Forest, you know, one of six teams who were in the promotion race for most of the season, but they were always in the latter part, sixth or seventh, and they had a late rush and they were in third place by the time they played us. And if they'd beaten us. Yeah, I think they might have gone ahead of us on sort of you know goal scored and yeah they had a better goal difference. So really, really important game. Yeah, and they were a good side. Yeah, and I think we were a bit lucky to win that day. And you know we won with a very late winner from Jock Finiston. I think he scored it a few minutes ago. That might have had a little shade of offside to it, but hey, what what the hell? But that was so important because that put us a little bit of distance between us and Forest. Yeah, by four points. And that would prove really crucial yeah, at the end of the season. I think the other thing about the Forest game is, yeah, we saw an early sort of cluffism, you know, because obviously all the press after the game, yeah, they wanted to talk about was, yeah, was Jock Finiston's goal offside? And Cluffy says, how the hell can I tell if their winner was offside? I couldn't see from where I was sitting. I'm sitting in one of the worst dugouts in the country, although I expect the directors... We're all sitting in nice, comfortable vantage points. Can't they get this thing tiled on the rates when he talked about the dressing room, which he described as a pig hole? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, this was the new East Stand. Yeah, and brilliant. Now, um, obviously, the, the the key match, the really the really crucial match, the match that gets us promotion effectively, is going away to Wolves. We we need a point to get promotion. They need a point to win the title. But the interesting thing about this, of course, is that. Uh, uh, well, here's the question for you, Mark. I mean, there have been several occasions from what I can figure out about the the whole concept of you can't ban a Chelsea fan. I know that there was one that was famous in the 80s, but I think this is perhaps the first example of it because they made the match all ticket, didn't they? We were, we were banned. Uh, yeah, we were banned. We were banned. After the misbehaviour at the Charlton game. Yeah. So, ah. uh, the sports minister, I think, was it Dennis Howe? You know, Probably you know, put a put a ban on us. So yeah, so this game was all ticket and no tickets made available to Chelsea fans. How many of us were there? I think it was about eight thousand. Yeah, I think yeah. even <laughs> the entrepreneurs that were British Rail at the time, because there was no club travel, no nothing. Even though the club you know, did their own form of travel, I think British Rail decided on the morning of the game to run special trains to Wolverhampton because they could they could see the um, financial opportunity. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So you were there, clearly. No, I wasn't actually. No, I never made it. Cool no. Yeah, because obviously we were a band and obviously 14 years of age. You know, that's probably one of my regrets at Chelsea, not going to Wolves in 77. So not old enough to go in pubs and 80 pence tickets were changing hands in the pub at £2 beforehand. Yeah. And weirdly, I had a ticket because they gave tickets to season ticket holders because we were considered uh, not the kind of person who would be running on the pitch or causing a problem. And they so, did run uh, on the pitch at the end. With they the did. Fans. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But you were you there, J.K.? No, I've got the I had a ticket. I didn't go. 
You are such a lemon, mate. <laughs> You've let the side down, mate. No, I have. I have. I, I, I think there was a reason. I think I was in. Uh, I think I was in a show um, at uh, at university. I think I think I went and did. I did a telly actually at the end of the season. I think I got into a got a professional engagement round about May at that period. So uh, I remember my very first acting job. I think. Well, no, I'd done a film when I was little. But no, uh, uh, anyway, I didn't go. I, did, I had a ticket, I didn't go. My dad didn't want to go, so he didn't go. Well, there you go. Uh, Tommy Langley, who, of course, had been brought in by uh, Eddie McCready in place of Kenny Swain, uh, scores again. Uh, Wolves equalised. I think it was John Richards. It nearly always was. Um, but uh, basically, it petered out to a 1-1 draw, which kept... It was John Richards. Kept both sides happy. Wolves win the title. We go up, definitely. And it all boils down to a kind of a you know a bit of a, a kind of a, I don't know really a party time I suppose Chelsea against Hull last match of the season uh 14th of May 1977 um and this is where you can bring in your rant about running on the pitch again Jonathan I watched the highlights of it again today and Brian Moore was apoplectic with rage about how disgraceful Chelsea were the interesting thing is is that Brian Mears immediately after decides to fence everybody in as a result and 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 another thing and another i feel like wagging my finger here and another thing he increases the juvenile prices to one pound as well yeah. so there you go so what what did you think of it mate because i there were a lot of boos there were lots of off off I'm off, afraid off I was going one on of the people who said off 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 because uh i was there and um uh, and we were convinced the referee was going to abandon the game because it was just so ridiculous. It, they 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 ran on the field towards the end of the game um, when a goal was scored uh, to make it was it to make it three nils before before the, the there was a penalty at the end and um, uh, and they seemed to the fans seemed to think that every goal could be celebrated by um, as if it was the final whistle, which of course and once again it was that thing of everybody going oh everybody else is running on the pitch let's run on the pitch. There was no hooliganism involved. It was just let's get on the pitch, you know. Yeah. It was. It was. That's what you did, you know. It just. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, but, I mean, Ed, Eddie had to come on the pitch, didn't he, Mark? He made. He, uh, made, an, he yeah. made an announcement that I had to say I found completely incomprehensible at the time. But nobody. We all just said, "What did he say?" I remember. We know what they'd say now if he did that. They go, "Speak fucking English." Why would, don't you speak? Would, <laughs> but uh, it was very. What, what, one of the YouTube clips you gave us was uh, reference to was the the whole city. And I'm bemused as to why the Big Mac did it, because it was a meaningless game. But um, whether they expected there to be trouble, and that's why they did it, and they were looking for that kind of thing. But they did an, uh, uh, they did a, um, an expose of what went on in the dressing room beforehand, and uh, with, with McCready giving a team talk, which was fascinating, except most of it was him going, eh, well, you don't need to back. you understand. And uh, he kept saying, you Dear understand. Ken. And I kept thinking, it's because the players don't understand. He's having to say this all the time. You know, it's such a thick Scots accent. But it was it was so apparent that it was actually very revealing. It was, it was a very good. Uh, if anybody listening, you should you should try and have a look at it on YouTube because it it's um uh, he's he's got all the you know what's going on with with other players all the time. He's he, with the opposition. He's he's analysing and scrutinising what the other other teams do, which apparently is not what Clough ever was supposed to have done. He always just said, "Well, I get my team prepared and I tell them to go out and play," which I think give it give it to that fat bloke on the wing, wing, (laughs) young man. I can tell you you what Eddie did actually say. He said, "Don't spoil the season for the players of both teams. Do us a favour and let the game finish." 
Oh, that would be good. We, that, that, we were all. Saying, I remember the time all of us saying to each other, "What did he? What did he say?" And then we've got the gist was he was saying, "Could you stop doing it, please? Because the referee's going to abandon the game." Yeah, I, I, he, I have to plead guilty on this. I, I ran on the pitch on all three occasions. I would have done as well. I was in the top tier. The top tier. But we were. But we. It was at the second time. I remember saying, I, "I'm afraid I. I chanted off, off. I get off. I'm. I was a bit more violent. I said, "Fuck it, get off." Going to abandon the game. Get off. Bloody hell. What's the matter with you? The best um, pitch invasion, though, and I, I don't think it's picked up in any TV coverage. Um, when the second half started, this skinhead, if I remember this right, he ran on the pitch at the start of the second half as the teams were coming out with a bunch of flowers. It could have been before the game for Ray Wilkins. You know, and he got down at Ray Wilkins' feet. It's like kissing Ray Wilkins' feet with this bunch of flowers. And it was, it was either before, I remember, I remember that, you know, just really weird thing to do, like a skinhead with a bunch of flowers as well. Yeah. And it was Brilliant. another crowd. It was, we had 43,000 that day, 700. Now, I thought there was more in yeah, the ground. Perfect, yeah. The, 50, the 55,000 we had against Fulham. Oh, it was about 65,000 crowds. Yeah, there was 60,000. Like, you know, one of you, one of you, one of you. shouted out 43,000 again. We all went, what? Everybody went, what? What's going on? Corruption. I got a Stanford Bridge at half one that day and I was already locked out of the shed. Yeah, yeah. The Fulham game, I went in the shed at 10 to 3 for 55,000. That had to be 60,000 at that whole game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, Easily. absolutely amazing. Well, the high, the highest uh, attendance all season was fifty-five. So, yeah, well, it's the, remarkable, the, isn't the, it? The, the, the dodgy turnstile bloke wasn't there that that night. Yeah. Anyway, we win four uh, nil. They're on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. Well done, Chelsea. Now let's have a kind of a bit of a wrap up and a summary of this. Um, Super Jock gets a hat trick, by the way, which takes his goal tally to the of the season to twenty six. Um, that is a proper, proper striker's return. He was a revelation in the season, wasn't he, Mark? Oh, absolutely superb. Super jock. He scores goals, as we said, sang last week. Um, and, you know, I don't know how to sort of describe jock. Cause, you know, he's not your traditional sort of goals, goals score. You know, he, he, he just sniffed them out, you know. Um, you know, he'd score with his ass if he could as Jock. Yeah, you know, but he was so crucial to our season. He was as important as Ray Wilkins. That, those twenty-six goals. You know, and there, there were periods when we needed a goal. You know, yeah, many times during the season, more at the start of the season. You know, Orient, Carlisle, Plymouth, Blackpool, Oldham, Blackburn, Burnley, Blackburn, and Forest. Again, the goal he got was the winning goal. Yeah, you know, he didn't just score goals. He scored goals that got us the two points. You know, really crucial player, Jock Finiston, and so sad. You know, to see him leave, sort of like. You know, 12, 12 months later, Sheffield United. Yeah, I've never understood so, that. We'll have to get on to that, you know, at the appropriate time, I fear. He never, but, want, he uh, never wanted to leave. No. Yeah, yeah, very weird. Um, there were, I mean, obviously Ray Wilkins, Jonathan gets the huge plaudits. I mean, phenomenal season again. The highest appearance maker, got 10 goals himself. Um, but we talk about Ray all the time. And I, and, and I think there are other people that deserve a lot of credit this season. Uh, to, to pick a few out, Ian Britton, 40 appearances, 10 goals, which I think is brilliant. Um, David Hay turned up. He played regularly, 36 games, also scored a couple of goals. Ray Lewington and Gary Locke, I think, also really deserve a massive, massive pat on the back. Again, both chipping in with 47 appearances. But Kenny Swain, 41 appearances, 14 goals. Terrific player. Brilliant, brilliant player. Well, Absolutely brilliant player, Kenny Swain. He's yeah. down as defender right back in this list of. I know he's, he wasn't. 
He was a forward. Played him up front. He scored some yeah. fabulous goals, midfielder. But he was at he was. But as was proven, he was a world class player, Swain. He was a really top top player. You don't win the yeah. Champions League without being a top player. He really was. No. Top of and, and Gary Stanley yeah, as well, and, another and one. You put Kenny Stanley outside the game as well. I think it was at the last World Cup uh, um, of that England side that I think played in sort of quarterfinals. I think eight of that side he'd coached, you know, at youth level for England. He'd, you know, he'd spotted talent as well. You know. yeah. So not only was he a good footballer, he was a, he was a good footballer. Right, right man, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was well. lovely. I'm, I'm, I met him bizarrely. Um, I was filming uh, some weird charity do uh, up in Birmingham, and they had uh, a lot of the old Aston Villa players from the eighty-one. Was it eighty-one? Wasn't it when they won the European Cup? And I found I, I had to go around, you know, interviewing people, and I figured out that that Kenny was on on the Villa table, and and I, I made a beeline for him, but he's very quietly spoken. He doesn't doesn't really. He's he's a very he's just a very kind of gentle, quietly spoken bloke. So I couldn't really get much out of him. Get, if, if you ever get the chance, talk about music. He's a big rock music fan. Is he really? Oh, he loves he, he really? loves he loves his music. Big Led Zeppelin fan as well. He, he told no me way. When, he was the first player I interviewed, Freddie Mac. First play, first interview I did, and he was telling him how him and Clive Walker used to bunk into Earl's Court, you know, to see Led Zeppelin for free back in the seventies. Oh, brilliant stuff. Okay, back to the football. Um, I think the first question is. You know how good was the football, Jonathan? Oh, much! Oh, it, it it got better and better. You know that was the thing. That was you, you could you you knew going to watch the team that they were going to put in a decent performance, which the the last few seasons you hadn't been convinced about. And players who I'd written off suddenly started playing uh, playing better. I was still never never convinced about Graham Wilkins, but um, um, uh, but. Um, he, he played a bit he, he, and Wicks was occasionally found out of position. Clive Walker was doing his about to, to get into the side. He didn't play at all. He was just a sub, wasn't he, once? Um, uh, Stanley was... Uh, was you, all of these players, my opinion was you always you thought, how are they going to do in the first division? Uh, let's get behind them because you would do. I think they're going to be great. It was almost as if you never thought they were the finished article. So they would just get better, basically, because yeah, they were yeah, young. Yeah, they were absolutely, young. Absolutely, absolutely. And you were on their side, but you didn't, you know, it's like um, Lewington. I was a fan of, I liked Lewington because he was, uh, he, he buzzed about and was hard. You liked Langley because he came in and did his thing. Uh, Hay always confused me because um, I think this was his best season, but I was I was disappointed because he was, uh, um, you know, he should have turned it on the seasons before. Um, and I didn't understand why they'd spent 250000 on him and not kept Osgood or, or Webb or any of the others. Uh, I, I found that very peculiar. Um, but Steve Finiston, for me, was the uh, the player of the season for, for just potential. You really thought we've got another really exciting forward here. And mm. uh, 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 26 goals oh, hey. for any anybody, any striker in any age uh, is a big tally. Completely. He was... He was my favourite player of the season just because he was a goal scorer and he, you know, I like midfield players, but, and Ronnie Harris did his bit. We didn't play much up whole of the season, played 17 times. And, and Charlie came in and was good. And Ian Britton buzzed. Ian Britton always buzzed and got some bizarre headers. I remember he scored headers a lot, which considering, yeah. considering he was uh, about five foot six was, was quite a, quite a mystery, but he ran, they all ran like, like, um, like whirling dervishes. They never stopped. It was, that was the, that was part of it. It was part High of the tempo. thing. Yeah. Uh, Huge tempo that he played, 
and he was clearly a really really top class manager and um uh, well i mean let, let's move on to that um i've got a i've got a theory which i want to share with you but you know you alluded to it earlier on jonathan um what a great thinker of the game he was and i mean when you read the interview that mark did in the book it, it really comes across well how much number one how much passion he had for the club how much responsibility he had that he makes this point again that he kind of came you know at the the worst moment in the club's history and he was determined to to make it work but beyond that um i think he was clearly a very very good manager um and you know i know we'll find out in the, in the forthcoming weeks because we know that he he doesn't you know he he leaves the club uh over the summer which i'll talk to mark about in a minute but i wonder you know as jonathan's saying you know we've got the nucleus of a team here that have, you know, really played well as a unit together, playing really good, attractive football. We got some, I mean, you know, Wilkins is a world-class player, no doubt about that. And I think, we're, you know, the comparison we were making with Forrest, when we beat that team that had nine out of 11 of that team went on to win the league yeah. and the European Cup. And I wonder if Eddie was good enough to have taken this on to the first division the next season and done very well. And I wonder if, if he'd have kept that side together maybe we'd have bought one or two players because let's face it, Clough brought, brought in Shilton, which is fundamental to them winning the league and, and, and the European Cup. But I wonder if we could have competed for the league. I mean, why couldn't we have done a forest, Mark, with Eddie in charge if he'd have stayed? I, I agree. We, we will never know. Yeah, we will sad, never know, sad, obviously. We will never know, sadly. But, uh, you know, that, that man, you know, and again, it might be misty-eyed romanticism, that man put his heart, his soul, his guts into Chelsea Football Club. You know, he, he, he is so significant in our history. You know, there, there is a lovely story. We haven't got time tonight where, you know, just before that end part of the season where he sits down with the journalist Peter Blackman, you know, and he has like, you know, a much needed sort of like vodka and coke. And he talks about the pressure of the job and it talks about how selfish he is in his domestic life, you know, and staying up sort of like, you know, 24 hours a day, sometimes till two o'clock in the morning worrying you know you know will we make it will we make it you know and he has this say it just says you know he comes back to that thing again he always thought we would because he is and that's maybe it's a scottishism he's a fighter he's got guts you know and he was absolutely convinced yeah he'd take this over the line and he just comes out with this phrase you know i've dealt all my cards there's nothing else i can do now just before that end part of the season and the story on the pitch you know turns out absolutely the right way but even when you know that point you just made there i asked that of all the guys when i interviewed them for the book you know what would have happened you know if eddie had stayed you know and a lot of the guys said you know you know with one or two player acquisitions why couldn't have chelsea have done a forest yeah you know, chelsea were a better side and forest that season got promoted and look where forest ended up you know it is tragic what happened you know he left soon after but if he had stayed you know chelsea's history could be even you know you know we could have been reliving history rather than making history now. Well, I think I think the thing that the, the point that I'm kind of making actually, Mark, is it's not just about the players here. And I mean, clearly the players on their day were better than that Forest team. But I wonder actually what we never got to see was just how good a manager Eddie McCready really, really was. I mean, I think, I mean, there's something quite Mourinho-esque about it as well. And I mean, I know that Mourinho quite often gets compared to Clough in a way. But for Eddie McCready to come into Chelsea in the shit heap that he found them, get the job and then say, 
I will get you back into Division 1 in two seasons and then go and do it. Not just do it, do it with a very, very young side and do it with style. I mean, who knows how good they could have been with Eddie in charge? And I think that's the point I'm making. But of course, it never happened, did it? And and again, the other thing he did, he created, whether it's a spread of core camaraderie at that club, that, that, that it lives on to this day. Those players, you often have people pass through football clubs, you know, you know, while they're there, they have a relationship. After it, they move on. That group of players, to this day, you know, keep in contact with, with each other. You know, I said I'd give him a plug tonight. You know, I had a, a chat with Teddy Maybank today. You know, he keeps in contact with the guys there. Yeah, they're all, you know, communicate with each other. You know, even to this day, Ray Lewington, Teddy, Tommy Langley, Jock Finneston, Gary Stanley, you know, they all keep in regular contact. He he built that camaraderie, and it remains to this day. You know, I I am biased. I think he's one of the best managers we've ever had. Yeah, mm. and it's true. I mean, I mean that that marvelous night. I'm not sure if you were there or not, Jonathan. But when, I was, when I was, Mark, I was. you were there, I was. I forgive me. I was. I mean, I had to do that bloody you know interview with Cundy on stage talking about the trust. Yeah. So I had to keep keep my shit together. So I only had a couple of pints before the interview. And then the pressure of doing it and having to keep myself together, as soon as I finished that speech or that interview, I, I hit the beer hard. So I don't really remember that much of the rest of the evening. There's a hilarious picture of me which circulated, funnily enough, this week with me and Stretch and a couple of others clearly looking a bit mad but and drunk. Um, you saw me at the end and said... Oh, what are you doing here? Did I very probably? I, don't, I really don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. But what was clear from that night, though, before it became unclear for me, was actually what Mark was saying, Jonathan. And and they love each other, they those do. guys. There was do. a re- you could see the bond between yeah, them all, yeah. couldn't you? There was great wit and uh, uh, an appre- appreciation of each other, and and Eddie as well. But Eddie was overwhelmed on that evening. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. God. And, and, and it was, it was and such Jonathan, an emotional evening. He really yeah. transmitted it. Yeah. I think jo- Jonathan yeah, nailed it there. We warned Eddie beforehand in the afternoon what was coming because we thought, you know, he would get a tremendous response. Yeah, and I, I think he was even and his wife Linda were taken aback at the, the how how the love in that room for him that evening was just absolutely incredible. And when he was talking those, those key moments about why he left, you could hear a pin drop in the room that night. Yeah, very incredible you could. evening. I mean, I've been to a lot. Of, I'm very, very lucky and privileged, actually. I've been to a lot of really good Chelsea do's down the years, uh, certainly in recent times. And I have to say that is without doubt the best night, non-footballing night, if you see what I mean, that I've had at Chelsea. It was just, as you said, Mark, the, the love in the room and the warmth in the room for not just Eddie, particularly Eddie, but also all of those players was just, you had to be there to really feel it. And I think that was really important. And that's a lovely way. Oh, no. One more thing, unless you don't want to say, because, of course, it's the key thing in the book, the big show and tell the giveaway. You, you, are you going to tell us why Eddie left? Can, can we talk about that? Buy the, buy the book and find out. <laughs> OK, well, fair I'll enough. Give, I'll, give, I'll give him a clue. He didn't leave because of the car. Yeah. No, it wasn't the car. Wasn't the car. I tell, I'll tell you what, I won't, I won't reveal what happened. Um, but what I'm... We'll be stum. No, I will be stum. But I, I, it's a shame because I'd love to have debated it because... I really, it's so incredulous how they all allowed that situation to happen, given what we've just said. But I'm not going to spoil it because I I now urge, if you really, really want to know what happened and form your own conclusion, go and read Mark's book and, and the other boys who wrote it, DJ, Kelvin, Smithy, Mark. It's just a fantastic book. And, and Mark, I have to say, 
brilliantly has done it so much justice for the last two episodes i have i have enjoyed this so much jonathan i, I i'm sure you share that view oh brilliant brilliant stuff even okay the pain of reliving so much of this but this wasn't a painful season no this is great it was a lovely season this was great this was uh and with the expectation that it would just get better and better and i'm afraid that eddie's non non-appearance the following season was uh i want it's sort of example of them shooting themselves in the foot you just go, well uh, we will find out about that next week won't we, we will. 